Hello, it's Devon the editor. If you're hearing me at the start of this episode, that means there's something I need to tell you about. Um, you may guess while listening to this, but this was recorded shortly after Sam Altman got fired and shortly before he got rehired. So we're talking a lot about him getting fired um, and we do not mention that he's been, he's sort of returned in a very meaningful way to OpenAI. Um, we're aware of that. That's the only thing that we're getting wrong. And it's just a product of when we recorded this. Everything else we say stands 100%. All right. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts, the show about how everything is posting and also how uh, sometimes we record in the morning and I forget things all the time, such as recording this podcast. My name is Hussein. I am forgetful in the mornings. My name is Phoebe. Um, I'm all right in the mornings. You're a morning person. Morning you are a morning person. person. I am. Sorry. Um, I know that's, and I know we're that's talk- despicable, but uh, it's just the way it is. We're talking about the mornings because uh, we're, doing, we're doing a rare Australian recording. And uh, to join us on this rare Australian recording, uh, we have our friend Jafin Sadowski back on the show. Uh, you may know Jafin from uh, This Machine Kills, or you may know him from, you may know Jafin from his other work. Uh, on insurance and other very cool stuff, but you may also just know Jafin because his posts are good. Jafin, how's it going? <laughs> it's good. I'm doing well. Always happy to be back on 10K Post. And this is this is actually a rare evening record for me. Mm. Um, mm. I am usually recording my podcast in the morning, but it's uh, it's after dinner time here, so I'm 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 probably in a very different mood yeah. or, or, or well, state of being yeah. than normal yeah, podcast. <laughs> you're well satiated. You've had like a day's worth of experiences that you can reflect on uh, while you come on the show. Um, you know, it, it feels in some ways that you're cheating, like you're ahead of us in life. Uh, and I'm not sure how to, I'm not sure how to, how to take that. Mm, yeah. In some there's ways like a, I am. There's, because there's a time I, gap. There's a time, there's a problematic time gap. I'm, I am, I am in some ways ahead of you today because I've already recorded an episode of TMK this morning. So my oh, podcast oh, is already all right. recorded. All right. Like, yeah. like, like that is it. And yet. We're ahead of you in some ways because the day is still ours. Is still ours to have. Anything could happen so, with yeah. our day now. So, 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 so the question really is like who who is on the receiving end of the problematic time gap? Yeah, who this is the, yeah. I think we I think we need to tease out the power differential. <laughs> who is who is doing better, the 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 evening person or the morning person? <laughs> I love the idea of problematic time gaps. <laughs> 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 I mean, is, is 11 yeah. hours a problematic time gap i, think it I mean is. i guess it really I, yeah, depends i think, I, I, I think it, I is. it is i think we should we should post it on one of those um on one of those reddit aggregator accounts on instagram and let them let the commenters decide yeah well why don't we start yeah well, why look why don't we start with our listeners do you number one do you think a problematic time gap exists number two what is the acceptable what is the acceptable like time gap you are allowed to have with someone when you're talking to them mm-hmm. and number three does it make it problematic as a british person to befriend australians <laughs> um let us know i think let us I, know. I, I think it potentially does well i guess it might also depend on where in australia right because yeah. maybe like the, maybe in brisbane you're fine i, I can't remember like I, f- I feel like the brisbane time gap wasn't that bad when i was there uh but you know 
uh, anyone else is a bit, it's a little bit little bit tricky. I think the, uh, the Melbourne not, one is the longest. I think. Yeah, I'm not here to judge anyone, but I am saying that like probably worth thinking about if um you know. Look, all I'm saying yeah. is if you're if you're a British person and you're talking to Australian, talking to an Australian, I think you just may, just maybe need to think about what it is in you that needs somebody who is working on quite, quite such a different level and is on quite such a different stage of their life. Just got to yeah. think about how the power plays out. Just think about how the power plays out. <laughs> it is important. <laughs> it is important. Apply that to other aspects of your life as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you have a friend in Japan, maybe think about that. Um, <laughs> no, we on the show. On the show. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> This is such a good unhinged drift to start this episode. I love it. <laughs> this is morning. This is morning brain. I'm actually really surprised about how 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 morning brain has played out for me. This this may this may really change the dynamic of the show. No, okay. Look, all right, all right. You came here. You came here for uh, to talk to, to to talk tech. And let, why why don't we talk about another unhinged poster that is problematic, but for many different reasons? Um, which is to say, uh, on this episode, there are two things I want to talk about. First. Uh, and, and the first one is, uh, our friend Elon, uh, again, trying to avoid talking about him as much as we can. There are certain, but he keeps on doing shit and, uh, he recently has decided, or he has said, and you know, when I, when I say he has said it may materialize into nothing because quite often this does happen. But he said on the weekend that he will file quote a thermonuclear nuclear lawsuit against the, against the nonprofit Media Matters um, and others, including Disney, Apple, and IBM, who have who have uh, pulled more advertising from X amid uh, let's say not just anti-Semitic remarks from Elon, but him kind of just agreeing flat out with Nazis, and then his post showing up next to ads for like big companies um the precedent for this is like you know ads like advertisers have been pulling out from twitter for a while um the initial kind of reaction when this was happening from elon uh was him saying that like there would be lots of other small companies that would fill in the gap so he wasn't too worried about it now he very clearly seems to be uh not least because i think there is this recognition that like doing ads on twitter just has never really been good and especially not now mm. um one of the things I was interested in was because every so often I do remember that Twitter does have a CEO um, <laughs> called Lindy Hackerina. Uh, she just like sort of shows up every so often. I, I am uh, so I am so I am so obsessed with her because it doesn't matter what's going on. Up she pops, saying like, "Okay, so who else is counting down the counting down the days until the first time they hear all I want for Christmas?" And it's like. Do you read any internal <laughs> memos? Are you even on Twitter? I actually think that I actually think that she might not be. I think they've got her in an extremely fancy corner office and she's got a dummy screen. Mm. I don't think she actually <laughs> gets shown anything that's going on because it's the it's honestly the only, the the only possible way that you can explain that mm. you can explain her behavior it's sort of quite it's sort of quite charming um and i also don't 100 percent blame her for it um she's sort of just sort of one of those people who's just like look i have a, i have one esoteric interest and that is and that is 2015 style wholesome posting and that's what i'm gonna do you simply cannot mm. make me do anything else it, yeah. It's really quite baffling that she has the epitome of a nepotism job. Like she has the job that you would give 
to the rich heiress who like inherited the company, right? Where it's like sit down in this nice corner office with fake computer screens and 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 you're like Fisher Price, my first keyboard, and act like you're doing work, right? Or like, but but to my knowledge, like she's not a nep like she has no reason to have a nepotism job. Like she's not somebody who is really famous or born into wealth or for whatever reason has like been given this no show do nothing job like she was an ad executive at what like yahoo or something like that i mean like big whoop but like she was an actual like branding and ad and marketing executive at some other big company so i'm like how does she get chosen for this position of 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 this no show job where she's surely getting paid a massive salary to literally do posts that are like I can't wait for hashtag the Jets game so I can eat hashtag Buffalo wings with my husband or with my hubby or whatever, right? Like, what the, what are you doing? I completely agree, and I'm I'm so interested in her in her in her career trajectory because people keep saying stuff like, "God, why would she take this like poison chalice of a job?" And it's like, why wouldn't she? It looks fucking great. She's having a great time. She must be paid so much. I don't know. I mean, yeah, every so often she'll sort of pop in. So a lot of, I was looking just through some of her posts right now and a lot of them are trying to, so cause like her job, her job was always very unclear to me. It sort of felt like she was supposed to sort of be the professional sheen to Elon's kind of like erratic posting. And so when she was first brought in, the idea I imagine was just like, oh, you know, Elon has like, you know, the right idea, but because, you know, he's a bit of like a kooky tech guy, you know, he doesn't know how to articulate it properly. And so you need a CEO who can basically translate it into advertiser friendly language. And so I think what's very interesting is the fact that she can't, like the one thing that she was sort of brought in to do, which was to make all his insane ramblings and interactions like palatable to at least like a like a kind of stable base of advertisers this doesn't seem to be working at all and so and as a result she kind of has to be like pulled into kind of Elon's you know par- like paranoid dramas anyway mm. so you know so so she said in like a statement um that like yeah uh well she said in like multiple statements that the platform has done a lot to sort of like prevent brands advertising from being placed next to you know, Nazis and fascists and so on. Oh, um, that's, that, that, uh, no, never, that's really nice. That's really nice. But, ne- but never really it. explain, but, but never really explain how to do it. But like, I think anyone who's sort of an observer of this and Jason, you probably like have, you know, know much more about the insights than, than we do. But my, from my understanding, like the main, the, the, the sort of method of subscriptions to the platform and the sort of supposed benefits you get from that run counter to any sort of initiative to well like you you can't really run that type of subscription program while also kind of curating your platform in a way that prevents all the insane people who pay for your platform to be advertised next to like Nike or Apple and so on because like the whole purpose of them paying for it is that they get at least the same type of exposure as all these brands right like otherwise there's no point paying for that um and so even if this was like a calculated type of strategy the whole point of playing for a blue check is so that your post can be seen by like all your posts can be seen next to like your Disney's and IBM's and so on. I got to say, it's very, very funny. Both Disney and IBM being like, oh, no, 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 please don't put our adverts next to Nazis. Please don't do that. 
please don't do that <laughs> because um because uh people have this thing where they can like look up the history of companies on wikipedia and so we'd really like them not to do that so uh <laughs> so can you please just not put our ads next to nazis thank you thank you <laughs> it's like a version of throwback thursday right <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly except like ibm is like oh you know you know what i feel like we have a chance to like rewrite some stuff here um <laughs> I've really I mean, I changed think... as a person. You shouldn't judge me from my my younger years. I'm like I'm an adult now. It's not fair. <laughs> yeah. I collaborated when I was like 30. Like come on. Come on guys. Be, be Look, fair. There was be a problematic uh time gap between us. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know any better. <laughs> I'm just a I'm just a small Nazi company. That's so true. I'm just a small um, Nazi company. Yeah. Um, what I think is interesting about the Yakarino uh the the Acarina sort of like business and sort of her kind of her sort of placing and her and her sort of general kind of capacities and and the kind of i suppose the way that the sort of structures of the company have been kind of laid bare in a way that they just hadn't when um when Jack Dorsey was in charge is i think it exposes um a sort of quite unpalatable truth about the way that uh the way that corporatization works which is once you get to a certain level of seniority, it, it sort of doesn't matter what your capacities are, what your level of intellect is, what your uh, ability to problem solve is. Like none of this matters. It's just that you are somebody who has sat in a chair for the longest. And so mm. when a job comes up, it has to be one of these people. And it's a very kind of and it's a very kind of unappetizing pool of people. And it has to be one of these people and they just like swap the chairs around. Mm -hmm. And so most people aren't really aware of what kind of corporate structures really look like. But when it's being played out in public like this, it reminds you that these people are all just very, very unimpressive, uh, morally, mm -hmm. intellectually, um, just, just in terms of everything about them. It just so happens that, yeah, but that this is this is the C-suite. Th this is who is at this level of seniority. And it has to be somebody like this. We can't just pluck a kind of kind of bright whiz kid from nowhere and them into a CEO because that's not how it that's not how it's done. That's not how that's not how we do things. They have to have sat on councils and been a senior executive and worked for NBC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because that's that's the route and that's the trajectory. And the reason that very, very dumb people think that Elon is a kind of iconoclast is because he actually had a slightly different route into his chair. But that doesn't mean anything. It just means he's just not a child of corporate America. But that's sort of irrelevant. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, that that's that's exactly right. Like it is very much the myth of the executive to think that they they have anything like special skills or or all the bullshit around like you know the the CEO's schedule right like they they work 20 hours a day and and all of that and but then in reality when you drill down to it it's like yes it's because they every every single thing that they do they've like redefined as work right like they don't have a work life balance it's like when i eat that's i'm doing work because i'm fueling my my body to be a better executive when i'm when i sleep i'm doing work because i'm resting my mind like that's it's the it's the tax uh, life fraud is, life of... is tax deductible that's what they think yeah 
Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. It's tax fraud. And then it's been like reworked into this like hustle grind set meritocracy myth. Um, I, I, I think to before we do lose the the thread a little bit, I want to get back to something you were saying, Hussein, as well around like the advertising revenue and the kind of financials here. I mean, the reason why Elon Musk is like threatening this completely bogus thermonuclear lawsuit against media matters, which is not going to go anywhere, right? Like, but it's also not the first time he's threatened to sue companies because of like them making of them uh, causing Twitter to lose advertising revenue. Mm. This is like really the only uh, game he has left in terms of generating some kind of return or just at least like paying off the interest on the massive loans that he took out to buy Twitter. The only game he has left is to sue somebody for damages to that potential revenue so he can actually like activate some of that uh, value that was never actually real would never be real but he wants to in the court of law mm. he wants to finally make the court work for him rather than the court fucking him by forcing him to buy twitter by suing somebody into giving him a big chunk of money right because he knows that that's the only way twitter is ever going to make money or make and let alone make anything like the amount of money he needs to to make to crack even close to even on it the only way it's going to happen is by threatening other companies with money to give him some of their money Mm. and that's and i think that's really important as well because that's another point about the practices of corporate america being uh, being exposed in in a sort of in a kind of m- much more public forum than they're, than they're really used to, which is that this kind of trading around with imaginary numbers is one of those things that so feels like it should be illegal, but it but it isn't, and I hate that it isn't. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I absolutely agree. I mean, this is all um, you know. I have written about this in some of my my work, but this is all fictitious capital, right? It's it's just it's pure speculation. It's yeah. it's pulling value out of it's pulling potential value out of the future and making a claim on it in the present, right? Like that's all it is, and it is this. It is. <laughs> I mean, talk about a problematic time gap here, right? Like a lot of capitalism right now is premised on a problematic time gap where you look into the future, you say there's this much money that is potentially available in the future. And since it's a potentially available in the future, that kind of means it's like already real if you believe mm-hmm. in it hard enough. And yeah. so you can pull on it <laughs> in the mm-hmm. present, right? Like that's a lot of finance. Yeah. And this is, and because uh, I, because, and this is also like, so it really ties into, <laughs> um, ties into kind of the concept of kind of too big to fail because, and like a, like an ordinary person can't say even for like a kind of a large kind of credit based purchase they can't say well i'm going to i'm going to pay for this with some imaginary with some imaginary money which um i'm going to just move this equally imaginary money around and then i'm going to just generate and you just got to trust me you just got to trust me that i'm going to that i'm going to do that um and that that's not that's not something that's permissible for uh, for individuals, and it shouldn't be permissible for for ultra rich individuals either. It's it's uh, it, it's bad. Mm. That's my that, <laughs> that's my. <laughs> what, all right, we're, we're recording in the morning, right? It's, it's it just, is. It's just it just feels mm. bad. But like, 
but you it's really important i think not to allow characters like like musk to to set themselves up as a kind of too big to fail entity just like in and of in, in and of himself hmm. well i mean i I, don't, I think most people don't realize as well that this is actually how like extremely wealthy uh, one percenter people live is they live on debt. Mm. You you think when like a celebrity, whether it's a Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos, or even like a like a, a a big celebrity, an actor or a musician, or somebody who's extremely wealthy and lives a really lavish lifestyle, you think that like they're they're living like you, where they just have a lot of money in their bank account, like in their checking account, and they use their debit card to pay for like their their rent and their private jet and stuff like that. It's like, no, that that is not no, once once you get to a, that level of wealth, you live on debt. You take out extremely low interest loans from banks and you use as collateral or leverage assets that you own assets that are illiquid that might be things like your stock ownership in a company it might be other forms of assets you might be taking out loans against your your big mansion or your private car collection or whatever right like you are you are living mm. on debt um, but you are doing it through saying to the bank I have all of this, all these assets. They're not liquid right now um, because if I made them liquid, it would actually mm. drastically devalue them. If I were to like sell um, these stocks, mm. or if I were to sell my private car collection, or all these bonds that I have, whatever. Like if, and then so instead, what I can say is, go to a bank. I have a billion dollars on paper. Please give me half a billion dollars of walking around money at a like uh, a one percent interest rate, and the bank says, "Okay, we'll do that deal for you because that's how the economy works for people in your tax bracket." So it, it is this like I don't think most people realize just how much this kind of like l like leveraging debt to fund your lifestyle is the the way that. Uh, wealthy people live. And so doing mm -hmm. something similar to like do a, a massively over leveraged buyout of a company or of, of something, you know, of whatever, like it's, it's, it's a bigger scale, but still in the same degree of like how these people live their life. And so it's not like an unusual thing for them to, to think in those terms. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's the, I think that's the important thing that, that this is just what yeah. they think is normal. Um, mm. the only thing that I think is quite, quite funny and heartening out of this is that, is that, uh, Elon's probably got, uh, probably a pretty kind of highly trained team of lawyers, but I, I think it's quite apparent that, that they hate him as much as everybody else does. And I think that's quite, I think that's quite funny. I just sort of like the idea of the lawyers being like, <laughs> eh, should we tell him that he can, that he can, uh, that he can sue this company for like refreshing his page? Are we allowed to do that? Can we do that? We can. He'll believe us. He'll believe us. He'll believe anything. You do it. You do it. No, it's, no, 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 it's, no, no, no. It's my birthday. I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell him. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to persuade him to say publicly that he is going to sue Media Matters for refreshing a Twitter timeline. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, his lawyers would love that, though, because that's mm. just billable hours, right? Yeah. That is so many billable hours. Yeah. Mm. Which is another, which is, again, I guess, like, it's, it's, that's another form of, like, time gap kind of, um, like, or time gaps, like, sort of 
bullshit. Uh, the ways in which, because uh, I, I think I was thinking about some of the stuff you were saying about uh, all this stuff being built on uh, leveraged debt and like, you know, these kind of promises that one day you'll pay them back and like how it's really like this whole, you know, this whole sort of economic structure is one of people insisting or promising that they'll pay each other back, like these obscene amounts of money once, you know, they're able to make it, but the whole system relies on them not actually making that money and the people who benefit from that are like just the lawyers and i guess the accountants who facilitate yeah, all yeah. of it no do you remember do, do you remember that it wasn't that yeah, long all ago of which is that the same people were yeah. like being being like okay yeah i mean like he's got some like kind of weird ideas but he's like he's really committed to fighting climate change that was like a year and a half ago <laughs> it's just it's, it's funny it's i don't know it's funny it's funny <laughs> You can just say anything. Just say no things. one can stop you. People are, people have made the error of thinking that you yeah. can be stopped from just saying stuff, but you can't. Mm. Yeah, people say that Charlie Brown had hoes. He didn't. No. I mean, I understand why you guys talk about Elon so much on here too, because he is like, nobody is a better case study of like the dangers of posting mm. than Elon, right? Like, like, you know, he's always had this uh kind of really cringy edgelordism has been part of him forever right like you know he like his obsession with the letter x or like doing an x.com or something like that right like it's all very cringy but like he is it, it is really wild to see over just the last few years you know it's not as if he's like get, like like this has come out of nowhere he's always been this person um i mean he grew up in apartheid south africa for god's sake um but like it is also interesting to see how much that like he has fully embraced it, become extremely explicit about his like anti-Semitism and Nazism and, and everything. Um, and then his replying to randos on Twitter, uh, you know, in to the most like atrocious um, post, you know, people posting explicitly white supremacists, eugenicists, um, genocidal, uh, you know, uh, po you know, ideas and him being like, you like literally saying you have just, you know, said the absolute correct truth here. Right. Like it's, it's really, it is wild to, to see somebody become so unhinged in public. Just, yeah. In like in real time. Although do we have any proof that he can read like actual, <laughs> like actual formal proof that he can, that he can read? <clears throat> <laughs> what's the theory here that someone's reading it to him it's not actually him i think he's but well no it's definitely it's definitely him and and just to be a hundred percent clear this is not a kind of i don't think elon's a fascist i mean like he like he is like him being him being like dumb as a box of hair does not preclude him from being a fascist you can be both um it's just that there's something very kind of like vibes based about him just like particularly about his like his posting because like because all he wants is for posters to think he's cool and funny still even now even now even now he's sort of gotten a sort of, sort of taken a kind of full nazi turn but whenever he's sort of like replying to like replying to a nazi on twitter and sort of saying oh you know <laughs> oh yeah no, no, no this is so true there's just there's just there's a vibe of an orangutan being shown different <laughs> shapes on flashcards it's not that he's like reading the words he's just sort of taking in the vibe and if he has clocked that it's somebody that he that he wants to think he is cool then he'll just agree with anything they say and i don't 
necessarily think that he is that he is necessarily reading what they've said. I think he's. In fact, that's that's quite unfair to orangutans. Orangutans are very intelligent and, <laughs> and, and, and gentle and gentle creatures. Like more like a kind of like a kind of like a like a like a smart rat that lives in a sewer um that like that does <laughs> recognize like shapes colors or but like only recognizes them in relation to other shapes and colors it, he has like a kind of synthetic understanding rather than rather than <clears throat> actual understanding of mm. the words he's looking at yeah. does this make sense i i i i see what you're saying as well in the sense that he is extremely reactive and impulsive mm. like it's it is like very much like whatever is uh whatever is in front of him right he's just like reacting to it in a very impulsive way and he is also he is very and this is like very documented but he's very obsessed with with cool whatever he thinks is cool yeah. right but he has a very childlike idea mm. of what of what cool is right or very it's not even childlike it's like preteen right which is like the most dangerous um age for for a boy is to be like um <laughs> 12 or 13 years old you know mm. and that's very much where he is uh mentally um and and socially and and yeah. it, it really it really shows yeah, like to be a hundred percent clear, this is not this is, in no way this is meant to be a defensive Elon. It's it's actually a slightly separate point. My new theory that I don't think he can read, but I don't think he can read, <laughs> or like certainly certainly mm. not to adult level. <laughs> I, okay, I, I believe yeah. it. I, I would not be shocked. <laughs> I, I, I I I believe it too. Um, and the question then would just be, I wonder what he does read. But maybe we can leave that for another episode. Like I'm sure it will give us a clue. At some at some point, um, get, get him on Goodreads. Someone should set him one of those, like you know, like you know, in school when you have to like learn a yes. very long poem, um, just like just like as a kind of I don't know why they do this, just like a flex, um, but like get him to do that, like get him to like get him to like learn like some Robert Frost or something <laughs> and see if he can do it. On uh, <laughs> on, on on that note, we will return to Elon probably sooner than we would like to um but we have something else uh, on on this episode today uh we have i i guess if we're talking about like tech guys who post this is this does kind of fall into it he does post uh we are um i i am interested uh in talking about uh sam altman and open ai and the sort of drama that has happened to open ai again over the past week now as mentioned uh, I think off mic, but yeah, as people will know who've been following, this is this is very much an ongoing story, um, a story that like I I I've been a little bit confused about because I didn't actually realize like why I think there's been some speculation as to why Sam Altman, who is kind of the salesperson for like uh, AI, uh, the sort of AI takeover of the economy, the sort of shift of uh, all the interest from like NFTs and crypto into AI as the kind of uh, driver of like the technology of, of the 21st century. Um, Sam Altman was sort of considered to be not only like a salesperson, but the per like the philosopher king of a like of AI, the person who was supposed to sort of guarantee that this new technology would lead to human progress uh, against all the fears that it would kind of lead to civilizational collapse. Um, so when he was removed, 
it surprised a lot of people in the tech industry. It surprised a lot of AI watchers. It surprised people who are very skeptical of AI. Um, and speaking of people who are skeptical of technologies, <laughs> uh, for, uh, I was wondering, Jason, as uh, I imagine uh, you know some sort of more about the ins and outs of all this, could you explain to us, uh, well, it explains to people who like ha- really have no idea about why OpenAI, well, why this is such a big story. Like, what is going on here? Um, and why is it so significant to people watching the tech industry? Yeah, look, it also uh, surprised uh, in, a, in a very uh, severe way, mm. um, like Microsoft. And, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the, the largest investor in OpenAI that has, you know, now promised contracted 11 billion dollars of investment into open ai you know they haven't paid all that money of course and that that will happen over over time but they're but they have contracted to invest 11 billion dollars into open ai and and they were also blindsided by um uh, sam altman's firing right from all the reports that we know and this is still very much like a very live and an active news story. So things that we talk about now, by the time this episode releases, you know, there will be new developments, right? But we can kind of say like where things are at right now. But I think also talk more generally about like mm. the the corporate structure of OpenAI, which has been getting so much more attention than it ever has in the past because of the board of directors mm. um, for OpenAI. Um, unilaterally deciding to fire Sam Altman um, and do so just seemingly like out of nowhere on a whim. Um, I think they gave uh, Microsoft like a courtesy 10 minutes heads up before they went public with the posting that <laughs> Sam Altman was fired. Right. So like, you know, they, 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 they really played this like super close, uh, close to the chest before um, apparently just calling him into a uh, calling Sam Altman into a, a noontime meeting last Friday and then in that meeting saying uh, sorry you're fired right like um, and so th- this happened like a like a news dump like in the afternoon on Friday um, and then it was like okay the weekend right and and of course it was like an extremely a uh, weird and and frenzied weekend for people who uh, whose job it is to like break news and do coverage of all of this, and increasingly it's everyone's job to cover whatever happens at OpenAI um, because it has become um, one of the most important um, corporations in the world, at least in terms of like the attention uh, that it has and the import that is the importance that is imported upon it um, by everybody else. Right. And, and, you know, having a, an extremely popular and, and potentially powerful technology. And so like, you know, there, there's been all of this, a lot of stuff on the ground around like, why was Sam Altman fired by the board? We can, mm-hmm. and we will definitely get into some of those reasons. It's also, it's actually just unclear exactly why, like we know the the vague reason they gave, um, which was that Sam Altman was not being um, candid. You know, he wasn't being candid with the board and all of his dealings and and decision making, which they said impeded their ability to responsibly oversee the uh, open AI and hold it to its mission. You know, right. this is part of like open AI is 
um, a weird corporate structure as well, where it has a not where it was founded as a nonprofit, and that nonprofit still exists, and the board is part of the nonprofit, but under that nonprofit is a capped profit company, um, which is where most of the action with OpenAI happens, and it's what allowed mm. um, like Microsoft and other venture capitalists to invest uh, into OpenAI in this capped profit model. But the board of directors um, are, which is only four people, uh, are held to this like nonprofit <laughs> side, and they and they don't have any um, financial interest. In mm. OpenAI, their only uh, their only mission is to the nonprofit mission, which is about like um, safeguard. Their fiduciary duty is to humanity, as mm. they put it, right? So it's like safeguarding <laughs> humanity and Bloody so hell. it's all of this. <laughs> I know, I know. It's 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 absolutely absurd, but yeah. I think it also has really revealed a con- a potential conflict between the nonprofit humanitarian uh you know tech side of open ai and the increasingly powerful and central like commercialization um side of open ai and and from what we can kind of gather in part is that maybe some of the uh reasons for uh them firing so, so there's like two big theories as to that I've seen as to why the board fired Sam Altman. One is this is a pretty straightforward, like he was just pushing open AI to be too much like a Y Combinator company. And he was president of Y Combinator, the infinite, the, the very influential and infamous startup incubator, which kind of created the whole entire, like the whole modern Silicon Valley startup culture can trace its way back to Y Combinator, which is this like hyper focus on um, godlike uh, uh, entrepreneurial founders, um, this hyper focus on uh, scaling and growth mm. at all costs as the primary directive of startups, like, you know, and, and, and yeah, just like the, you know, uh, disruption and, and conquering the world and everything. And so there's this kind of idea that Sam Altman was importing a bit too much of that into open AI, pushing for commercialization, pushing for bigger and bigger deals, hyperscaling. And to be fair, there's a lot of evidence for this, that that's exactly what he was doing. I mean, it was only just recently Mm -hmm. that the FT reported that Sam Altman was going around talking to SoftBank and Saudi Arabia, trying to um, raise billions of dollars of funds to found a uh, an NVIDIA competitor, right? A company that could mm. build the kind of massive graphic processing units that companies like OpenAI depend upon. Um, and so kind of basically do like vertical integration for OpenAI so that they can make their own hardware to then run the software. And so like that's a big ambition for this company that first that originated originally was founded as a as a nonprofit to safeguard humanity against bad uh, sentient AI. And then that goes to the other kind of theory here as well, which is that um, that there there there's some some fear that maybe the board was worried that uh, OpenAI and uh, you know under Sam Altman's direction had gotten too close 
to the creation of AGI or artificial general intelligence, which kind of speaks to all of the like really cultish, cynical, bullshit, like existential risk mm. kind of nonsense that underlies a, like a lot of this and with <laughs> OpenAI being a kind of uh, a mecca for all of this existential risk, long-termism bullshit. But like, you know, I can imagine that the, the board of OpenAI Oh, I know for a fact that at least some of the board members are like really big, true believers in AGI. And mm-hmm. so that's also one of the theories is that like he got too close to, to, to seeing the face of God. And so we have to like, you know, fire him before he goes too far. I am I am obsessed with how keen these people seem to be to reinvent. Rocco's basilisk just from first principles I think that's I think it's so it's such a peculiar way of spending of spending your spending your one wild and precious life it makes no sense to me I mean I think it also speaks very much so and like these this is not an original critique um, of this whatsoever but like I think it speaks to what we were saying about the the weird world that wealthy people live in where like they like they do things different than us right mm. like in a lot of ways they are not like us whatsoever um and i think the uh uh the obsession with existential risk really speaks to a class of people that have absolutely no material risk to their lives in the imminent or immediate sense mm. uh, and and thus the only thing that they can conceive of as a threat to them is a world ending behemoth mm. um like that that is the only possible threat that they see to their livelihoods and so it's what they obsess over yeah, and the only th- whereas the only th- normal the people th- obsess over death. like paying the rent or making ends meet, <laughs> you know, yeah. but that but that's so distant to them. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. We, in fact, we talked about this uh, with your co-host Ed about how about how um, obsessed they all are with uh, uh, with like living for, with like living forever as a kind of as a kind of focus because they can't believe that they that they these are. Uh, these advanced beings might might be expected to do something quite so uh, quite so mundane as die, uh, but it's but it's part but it's part of the same it's part of the same impulse I think. So they like so they kind of, they sort of fear the idea of uh, what represents to them eternal life, and but because they are um, imaginatively and spiritually bankrupt, all they can picture as eternal life is like uh, is like kind of robot overlords. They can't. They can't imagine a way of um, a way of eternal life being like quite nice. That's not something that they that they can that they can sort of cope with as an idea. Mm. They can only like respond to like quite a kind of yes, yeah, sort of quite sort of childish sort of science fiction idea of what the future might look like with uh, with these kind of sentient sentient robots knocking around the place yeah i mean it actually it really makes me think of um this this essay that uh ted chiang the the science fiction author wrote like i think in like 2018 where he talks about how most of the you know our fears and anxieties about artificial intelligence are in reality fears and anxieties about capitalism right that we are projecting onto ai uh, and, and if I can, I'd actually, I would like to read, um, a little bit from, 
from that essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah please do. Where, so th- this, I think it's really, really in- indicative here as well um, about like why they care so much about AGI and a very particular kind of AGI. So Ted Chiang writes, um, you know, consider who pursues their goals with monomaniacal focus, oblivious to the possibility of negative consequences, who adopts a scorch earth approach to increasing market share, this hypothetical strawberry picking AI, and this is earlier in the essay, he describes a scenario kind of like the paperclip, right? Like, well, if you program an AI to maximize production of strawberry picking, um, and then it decides that the best way to do that is to turn the whole earth into a strawberry field. So it can pick the most strawberries, right? It's paperclip um, scenario. So this hypothetical strawberry picking AI does what every tech startup wishes it could do, grows at an exponential rate and destroys its competitors until it's achieved an absolute monopoly. The idea of superintelligence is such a poorly defined notion that one could envision it taking almost any form with equal justification, a benevolent genie that solves all the world's problems, or a mathematician that spends all its time proving theorems so abstract that humans can't even understand them. But when Silicon Valley tries to imagine superintelligence, what it comes up with is no holds barred capitalism, right? And that's right, like this whole culture of like hyperscaling and exponential growth and destroying your competitors, it should be said, is a culture that Y Combinator, largely under the, uh, the 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 tutelage of Sam Altman, helped to spread and propagate within Silicon Valley. So no wonder as well that he is doing psycho and like psychoanalytical projection mm-hmm. of his own fears and his de- and the death drive of the culture that he is a leading figure of onto. Uh, he's projecting it onto something else. Rather than projecting it onto mother, he's projecting it onto AI. Who is mother? <laughs> Who is mother? Exactly. <laughs> Regrettably, uh, no one likes it. No one. No one's happy about this. But to these people, AI is mother. Um, something that I something that I had a kind of in, I had an interesting conversation with um, uh, with a couple of friends, both of whom both of whom are coders. And there was a kind there was a sort of really sweet naivety in this conversation that we were having that they they were saying oh yeah like people are sort of saying that um that ai can can take can take coder jobs um but actually uh most of the work that we do is is actually like far too complex for machine learning in its current in its current incarnation to be able to do um and i so i um as a as a writer was like oh this is so cute it's because coders are sort of the they're kind of they're kind of the last last frontier of oh oh capitalism over production is going to come for us as well i didn't i didn't think it was going to come for us i thought that i thought that we i thought that we that we were safe and this is where this whole kind of oh learn to code thing thing comes from it's the idea that the that the only that the only real jobs that are going to be left are the people who write the code for for the robots and I thought this was a very, um, yeah, very kind of sweet and naive approach, which is, well, but, but like, but an AI can't do our jobs. Well, it's true. An AI can't write uh, good novels. An AI can't write good essays. An AI can't produce good art. It can't do any of this stuff, but it doesn't matter whether or not it can to any, 
any kind of valuable degree. What matters is whether or not the people that the people that see the most financial reward from work and from overproduction are going to look at it and say, "Oh, I can replace some of my coders with uh, with AI." And then I can like employ some AI technicians to do that. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that they can't do the job. It means that if somebody sells their boss on the idea that it could, then you're going to lose your job anyway. And I think it's just. I think it's really, really interesting that they that they have not managed to kind of sort of grasp that quite obvious sort of next step to it. Yeah. No. That that's absolutely right. And I think I think you are right as well that like this is something that really makes AI different. Um, well, all of this is, of course, a speculative asset bubble, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I think one of the things that like on a really kind of like material political economic kind of sense makes AI different than, say, Web3, you know, blockchain or crypto or NFTs is that like all of that Web3 stuff was purely fictitious capital, right? It was like sandcastles in the sky, money for nothing and your and your chicks. Well, there's no chicks around, but, you know, uh, um, but but uh, unlike Web3, AI, AI really inserts itself uh, in the capital labor relationship in a way that Web3 never did, in a way that a lot of other speculative asset bubbles in tech never did, AI does actually insert itself in the place where surplus value is made and extracted. Um, and like the, in other words, the true heart of capitalism as a, as a system of power and value. Um, and so I think that is also something that makes it sticky makes it more consequential, even if a lot of it is still very much bullshit and very much speculative, and also makes the uh, investment um, both like uh, ideologically and financially um, into AI so much greater. It's why, so going back to open AI, it's why rather than say like Microsoft being like, well, you know, Damn, why why did you get rid of Sam? Like, uh, well, you know, at the end of the day, he's just another executive. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we will our our partnership is with OpenAI, not with Sam Altman. You know, like that's not how they reacted. <laughs> they reacted in a very uh very opposite way where Microsoft immediately began exerting pressure on this uh on the the nonprofit board um and exploring its options to oust the board and reinsert um, Sam Altman and restructure OpenAI according to a more traditional um, tech company's uh, uh, structure, which is to say a very like um, top-down, uh, like strong executive mode of organization um, where, you know, it's very common, unlike a lot of companies, uh, unless it's a privately held companies, um, tech, the tech sector is quite unique in the sense that like a lot of the big public companies are majority owned by their founders. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not the case in most public companies um, where majority ownership is probably going to be a collection of like BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street or something like that. Right. Like big index investors and asset managers. So it gives. So all that's to say is that like Microsoft has not only not Microsoft is not only like obviously very invested into AI through its eleven billion dollar investment with OpenAI, but they're very invested ideologically into a particular 
um, perception and view and kind of cult of AI that centers around Sam Altman. Mm. And so once and and a lot of people in this in, in this space are Sam Altman is more than an ambassador to the world for AI. He is a cult of personality for AI. I mean, it's 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 talking about Elon Musk, right? Like we are talking about cults of personality and we are talking about people who have um, <clears throat> extremely ambitious and imperialistic kind of perspectives on what mm. they can, what their, their legacy uh, and imprint on the world should be like. Um, and, and Microsoft has revealed itself as making an investment, not into open AI, uh, but into Sam Altman. And so when they have, so in this like fast moving news story, when over the weekend, Microsoft kind of failed at its attempt to like oust the board or, or find any kind of avenue to re, uh, reinstate Sam Altman, um, as well as Greg Brockman, who was the chairman of OpenAI and was um, kind of like forced to step down at the same time as Sam Altman and Sam and, and um, uh, Greg Brockman were the co-founders of, uh, were among the co-founders of OpenAI. And so these two people, when it was clear that Microsoft didn't really have a good avenue to uh, take control and restructure OpenAI, they instead uh, said that they were going to be hiring Sam Altman and Greg Brockman to head an advanced AI research department in Microsoft. In other words, Microsoft is just taking open AI in-house. And, and I mm. saw that there was a big letter um, being from... Uh, so open AI has about 700 employees. And I saw that, about, uh, that over 500 of those employees had signed a letter calling on the board of directors to resign. Um, and, and so there's a lot... So, it was like an absolutely showing that people are people support Sam Altman, right? Like these people are um, adherents to the the church of Sam Altman, and so I I, I think as well that um, I saw some I saw somebody saying, and I, I forget who it was, but it was a business reporter writing on his Substack, and kind of basically saying that like what this what this means is. Um, it's looking like Microsoft is going to get to do a total acquisition of OpenAI at zero at zero cost and zero percent risk of an antitrust lawsuit, right? Because they are not doing an acquisition of OpenAI in a traditional sense of like buying out the company. They are doing an acquisition of OpenAI in the sense of, well, they fired the two executives, so we're going to hire them. They're free agents now. Oh, and like. All like the entire engineering team and hundreds of employees at OpenAI are all resigning and are all going to get hired by Microsoft, possibly. Um, and so, like Microsoft is rather than taking that eleven billion dollars that they were going to invest into OpenAI, which I mentioned before, they've only paid out some of that. A lot of that was contracted money that they would pay out over time, both cash and in kind in terms of like cloud computing infrastructure and so on. Well, they can now have a really good case about breach of contract. OpenAI breached their contract because their contract, I'm sure, had provisions around governance and and probably had stuff around like, you know, deliverables and working with Sam Altman on this and all that. And so like 
in terms of like what this looks like in a broader sense, while it's hard to say how this will actually turn out, it what I think is really becoming clear as a as a high likelihood is that Microsoft is going to be a actually might be a big winner in this whole like uh, coup that mm-hmm. opened that that uh, happened at OpenAI. Mm-hmm. Um, they by by being able to not just have to do an investment in a company, but be able to do a kind of aqua hire of the company mm-hmm. and all of its technology yeah. and know how and products, just further consolidating uh, Microsoft's monopoly over the the future of 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 you know of AI in terms of like you know, integrating generative AI into its whole suite of products and new products and everything like that. Mm. I wondered whether um, this change would change the, and I'm not sure how to sort of describe this, but uh, the sort of ethical pretenses, I guess, of OpenAI, the idea, at least that they were sort of projecting that, you know, this wasn't like a, this wasn't like a for-profit company. This was a company that like, truly understood the potential of um, generative AI and were like, you know, and they existed for the sake of making sure that it sort of integrated into uh, humanity in a way that was uh, you know, morally correct. And so like all of that kind of being bullshit from the outset, but at least there was like, you know, they could sort of project this pretense up because the company exists in the way that it does. And because there are so many stakeholders and because it isn't captured by a single like, point of like a, a single personality, like they can at least sort of present the idea that they are responsible custodians. And I wonder whether this acquisition by Microsoft basically extinguishes any pretense of that. Like, or I guess a better way of putting it is like, have we now reached this point with the, with the acquisition that, you know, the idea of AI kind of generative AI being ethical, that no longer needs to sort of really be talked about. Like at this point, what it, you know, we've like everyone involved now sort of understands that like, no, this is a corporate tool and we are going to use it to make like, like as much money as we can. Yeah. I mean, I think a hundred percent, right? Like you will still have Sam Altman and, and higher up people in this world talking about existential risk and responsibility and stewardship and all of that. But they, but it's always self-serving. It has always been self-serving in a couple of fashions where the, it, it, uh, tries to force us to put our focus on things that are um, highly speculative and often a distant future rather than putting our focus on the immediate or things that are already happening and have been happening um, and, you know like real material effects um, it also like does this it also establishes them as the only possible like technocratic philosopher kings who can steward us towards the good AGI and away from the bad AGI, right? And so I think like those ideological um, kind of those ideological elements are still extremely useful for a Microsoft. Um, but it will also, I think, absolutely be the case that like if this kind of aqua hire strategy works out for Microsoft, this if this is what they pursue, I mean, and it's, you know, they're indic- indicating that it is just by saying immediately that they were going to be hiring Sam and Greg to head up a new advanced AI department. Like, you know, that, they, like, Microsoft has never been shy about the fact that they are, um, that they are in it to, 
extract as much money as possible through doing everything except produce something of value, right? Like Mm -hmm. Microsoft has always been a company built on um, acquiring other people's uh, intellectual property, um, throwing up, uh, you know, gatekeeping and and toll booths to charge rent to access that property, establishing themselves as a um, a too big to fail uh, form of infrastructure and in everybody's life. Like that, that's their strategy. Um, it's never been like produce a valuable product that's like original and no one's ever done it before. It's you know mm-hmm. that that's not how you become a, a a Microsoft in this in this world. No, mm. you you let someone else do that because that's that's boring. <laughs> then you and then and then you sell it. Yeah, and that's what they're doing with OpenAI with ChatGPT and all of that. It's like literally exactly what they what they have done there. And so bringing it all in house is just kind of you know uh, finishing the 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 playbook that Microsoft has been doing since its incarnation, like from you know so fifty years now, right? Um, and and so. Yeah, like all of the kind of uh, bogus philosophy and cynical ethical stuff, it will still be there because it has an ideological purpose. But yeah. like, I think we should also expect a like a real doubling down on the the commercialization and hyperscaling of these like uh, Chat GPT powered tools. Mm. Mm. And- and it's and I think it's really important. I know we've made we've made this point before. I mean, m- multiple times, but to remember how much digital infrastructure was built for free by sort of generous collaborative nerds, and all of this stuff is just it's functionally just real estate exchanges at this point because the the stuff is there. It's just about who who can work out how to how to leverage it. It's about who can put the imaginary number on it most effectively and most convincingly yeah and who can you know who can sweat the asset the best and 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 the kind of financial terms of you know extract as much value as you possibly can from an asset yeah and I, 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 i suppose the kind of the fundamental point and the whole sort of moral of this is that anytime you hear people kind of piping up uh in this um in this sort of quite kind of naive utopian way about about tech companies does the answer is just is always the same which is what do you think companies do what do you think they are for and if they say anything other than to extract the most they can from an asset and to make money from from, in, from for, for the interested parties and and fuck everyone else uh, then they're just incorrect sadly mm-hmm. And they might be they might be sort of incorrect in quite, in quite a sweet way, uh, like I said, like my like my friend the coder who thinks that their job is safe uh, because it can't be done by someone who is not a person, uh, which I suspect lots of lots of writers who happily allowed uh, allowed their work to <laughs> to have a machine learning model train itself on their work. Um, sorry, allowed their work to be allowed their work to be used in this way. I'm sure they probably thought, well. You can't replace you can't replace us with because oh 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 good oh you no you can't but you also uh, but you also can and we actually can't stop you interesting okay so I would suggest that any coders who think that their that their 
livelihood is safe because the stuff that they do has to be done by a person. I would I would suggest joining a union is what I would suggest uh, if there if you've got one. I, I would uh, that's what I <laughs> that's what I would <laughs> suggest. It might be it might be mm. a bit little too late, but um, mm. you have to. Sort of I think it should yeah. also be said yeah. that yeah. increasingly more of coding is automated already well, I was, yeah, cause I, cause so, I was, I was going to say like like one of the I, I i completely agree with the sentiment but like you know if you can join a union definitely do it and like you know i think you can sort of draw some parallels of journalism and the sort of threats but like the actual real threats of like chat gpt to like a certain like section of the industry but with coders especially because i think as you mentioned like because so much of coding uh for lots of different reasons uh is like has been automated for a while I do wonder, like the sort of um, the effectiveness of uh, unionizing as, and, and not least because I think so much of the industry in the past five years has kind of been built around sort of freelance coders who can sort of put together, you know, small projects and stuff. And so, and then I mean, I mean that that probably warrants like an episode in and of itself. But I do, yeah, it is. Oh yeah, no, no, I mean, like to be honest, I was being facetious. I don't think there's anything yeah. that you can do, but you could have your eyes open. I think that's the point. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's yeah. it. Like ultimately, oh, you just, you've just got to be aware of all this. That's your that's really the only way. And I think Jason, you're right. And just as we're sort of like about to close the episode, I do I do think that like what this has to me, I although this is still sort of unfolding, the challenge of trying to understand this story has been to like try and look past the kind of mythologizing the PR effectively that has been built around Sam Altman and AI because I guess the story when I was listening to it on like BBC on uh, like one of the BBC news channels. It was sort of presented as like, oh, this is like the god king of AI who like had these really grand ideas of how to change society and open AI found him to be such a threat that like they sort of got rid of him. And to me, that like feels really convoluted because it, it because it is, but it is very much the case of like, oh, once again, media outlets are sort of buying into the hype that sort of is the foundation of so many of these technological trends, be it NFT, cryptos, and now AI. And once you sort of get past that mythologizing, what it what it is just the case of, you know, this to me, this sort of did just feel like house clearing. Whatever mm. happened with OpenAI to like shit the bed, Microsoft clearly saw an advantage in doing this. And now what we are left with is a much more empowered and free Sam Altman, uh, but also mm. in an environment where they have basically said that like even the pretense of ethical you know, consume like or ethical production of these types of tools that no longer needs to sort of be a conversation topic. And so I do some, I do worry to an extent where it's like, okay, well now we have like the full power of this like generative AI unleashed. And I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't think it will sort of lead to like a rocker's bastard situation, but I do think it will lead to just a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of like unemployment and a lot of, you know, societal degradation and also as you talk about a lot on your show and as we talk about a lot on, on our show um you know whatever is left of like our various states kind of becoming much more dependent on these types of tools in order to function uh and in so doing like really hollowing out like what is left of cohesive material society mm. apart from the lindy Acarinos, who will be found something she'll still be like she'll be still be earning she'll, like, she'll still be posting stuff like X, X yeah X, X is a great place to meet people to talk about things that you both enjoy such as Taylor Swift what such as Taylor Swift <laughs> such as how excited she is for Turkey Day 
Oh, fucking hell. I really um, envy the the Linda Yaccarinos of the world. It's like oh, it, it, they, they truly are like I, I all I can do is think about like like Barbie, like Barbie Land, right? Like before like in the in the movie, like before it started getting uh uh getting all weird um you know is like they like linda yaccarino is like literally living in barbie land right now or she's like going to her pretend job like you know she her <laughs> her whole her twitter by her twitter bio is just like you know i love a good pair of shoes and a great penn state football scoreboard you know it's like it's <laughs> a great uh a, a, a life to live mm. i think that's i think that's exactly right I think yeah. okay. We do need we do need to wrap up now, but I would just 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 finally, as final thoughts, uh, like to offer a, just a just a short historical perspective, which is that anybody who thinks of themselves as a philosopher king is not to be trusted. Even the original philosopher kings uh, were, were were not were not to be trusted on questions of on questions of morality, just because. Just because they they uh, did some did some thinking before before they committed their horrors, it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean anything. So yeah, mm. as soon as you hear the word philosopher king, you run you run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. Yeah, and I, I mean to to heighten that, I I almost think that like uh, philosopher king sounds quaint now. Like we are now looking at people who conceive of themselves as like Ubermensch, right? Like something <laughs> far more than just a philosopher king. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I, I wish they only saw themselves as like these, you know, philosopher, these platonic philosopher Kings rather than seeing themselves as like the, the Nietzschean Ubermensch who is stand, who is standing athwart the last man. You know, like uh, that. I, I think that's really <laughs> the kind of people we're staring down right now. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's right. And on that <laughs> on that slightly bleak note, <laughs> slightly bleak note. Um, mm. I think we're, end, we're ending the time. We're ending the time gap now, uh, which has only gotten worse since uh, since since we've been recording. Only extended. <laughs> always to say, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. It is always a pleasure to have you on. Um, do you want to plug anything? Uh, I'm I, I'm hoping that listeners know about uh, this machine kills, but yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Yeah, no, I mean that that's really it. Listen to my podcast, This Machine Kills, or follow me on Twitter at Jathan Sadowski. Those those are the the two best the best places to find me. But always a joy um, to come on and and speak with you guys. Uh, it's been far too long, so I'm happy we rectified that. Mm. And I'm 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 glad uh, I'm hoping to uh, have you back on. Uh, there's like the uh, yeah there's a there's a very interesting paper you wrote on insurance, and it would be cool to do an episode on that sometimes. So yeah, uh, little teaser for the next time Jason comes on. Well, I, I am uh, always game to talk about insurance on any platform that will allow me to. <laughs> so so I'm 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 down. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of 10,000 Posts. We really appreciate it. We have a Patreon, five bucks a month. Uh, we have bonus content on there. Lots of really good bonus content on there. Also helps us do the show without ads and to keep us editorially independent. We really appreciate all of that. So do consider supporting if you can. Um, I have no plugs other than to say that there are links to uh, Medical Aid for Palestine uh, and other links uh, to uh, help uh, in the current situation in Gaza. Do consider, uh, do consider supporting if you can do that. Uh, very much appreciated. Do you have any more plugs, Phoebe? Um, no, except I went on our um, on 
our sister show, Dr. Yanagas, uh, we're not so different to talk about Tudors on TV. If you want to hear about that, um, yeah, you should do that. Uh, which was which was uh, which was a lot of fun. So so check that out. Put that we'll do put that link in the show notes too. This show is produced by Devon. Follow them at Devon underscore on Earth. Listen to Kill James Bond if you don't already. Uh, and until next time, we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye. 